Welcome to Ideas Without Borders, where we take a deeper look at societal problems and form meaningful connections with the global community. This podcast is run by the student members of the University of Waterloo's Engineers Without Borders chapter. The University of Waterloo is situated on the Haldeman Tract, land that was promised to the Six Nations of the Grand River and is the traditional territory of the neutral Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. We encourage you to take a moment to also consider and acknowledge the land from which you are listening. Hi listeners, welcome to today's episode of Ideas Without Borders. My name is Camille and I'm a fourth year mechatronics engineering student. Now I'm a huge podcast listener and one of my favorites is Ear Hustle. Produced by inmates at the San Quentin State Prison in San Francisco, it talks about many aspects of their incarceration, like their day-to-day lives on the inside. This includes taking high school and college courses, photography, music, and of course, producing the podcast. It got me wondering about what programming there is for inmates here in Canada, so I started looking into it. And what I found was minimal. There's not a lot of publicly available information about what programming is available at either federal or provincial facilities. After a lot of digging, I came across some information on something called the Institutional Mother-Child Program, which aims to, quote, foster positive relationships between federally incarcerated mothers and their children, according to the website. So that's what today's episode's about. I talked to Dr. Carly LaRue-Demir about how the program works, the benefits of it, the problems with it, and what it can tell us about the Canadian correctional system as a whole, as well as our handling of classism in this country. Now, before I play you the interview, I want to clarify some terms and acronyms that will come up. CSC stands for Correctional Service Canada, which is the federal corrections or prison system here in Canada. We also have GBI, which is the Grand Valley Institution. That's a federal prison for women here in Kitchener. We also have Halfway House, which is basically a house that people go to as they're reintegrating back into society, and it has a lot of programming and services for them. These are usually privately run, and they are for-profit. All right, that's it. So I hope you enjoy the interview. Can you introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. So my name is Dr. Carly LaRue Demir, and I am a full-time lecturer at St. Jerome's University. I have been in the Department of Sociology and Legal Studies um, teaching since 2009. And basically, that's that's me in a nutshell. So what got you interested in the topic of mother-child programs? What, well, that's a good question. So it actually came together when I started the PhD program. I, um, I became pregnant early on when I started. And so interesting timing, I was at uh, a coffee with a friend and this friend is a correctional officer at a um, federal prison. And we started talking about different things, um, just sort of, you know, um, what's your job like and how are things going and this and that. And then he mentioned to me that they have what's called a mother-child program. And I said, oh, I said, what is that? Right. And so we ended up in this fairly lengthy conversation about um, the fact that this program exists to allow women to keep their babies, depending on whether they're pregnant or not. We can get into that later on site in the prison in a mother-child unit. And so I thought that was fascinating. And because I was becoming a mother myself, it was, it was relevant. It was it certainly stirred some emotions in me. And I started contemplating if I were to put myself in the shoes of others, a woman who is incarcerated and perhaps pregnant and or has a child, a small child, would I want them next to me for a certain period of time in, the, in that prison system? And so I think that's what drew me to the topic was really trying to get a sense of how I would even make a decision like that and knowing how attached I already felt being pregnant and to this child that was about to be born, I could really relate to women who would have to make such difficult choices in those in those situations and I'd want to be with my baby. So then I started to to investigate this. And then at the point where I had to decide what to do a, a uh, dissertation on, I chose mother-child programs. I think having, maybe if I hadn't been pregnant, I would have still asked myself the similar questions, but I would not have felt so connected to the topic. So I think that's 
an important aspect of, of research is, is that connectedness, that ability to empathize, the ability to, to put yourself in someone else's shoes and think about these different contingencies and how you would react. And then it also helps me to think about going into my research, what were some of the assumptions I had, maybe misguided even, what were some of the biases and, and, and how would that limit my my the objectivity within the research. So it was it was good in that it sort of created a framework for me to start to begin to to tackle these really important ideas and concepts. Right. So can you explain what exactly is the mother child program? The mother child program is a program that falls under the what they call commissioner directives 768. And that program is or allows women to keep their children up to the age of four in a full-time residency placement alongside their mother inside the walls of a prison. Okay, so this is a federal program. It's not provincial. So this means that women that are in those uh, federal institutions are serving a sentence of more than two years. Of course, there's classifications within those penitentiaries. There's minimum, medium, and maximum. And that has an impact on whether or not you can actually apply for this program. But that is what it is in a nutshell. And so let's say you're pregnant or you have a small baby under the age of four, you could apply for a full-time residency to have that child with you. Now, there are part-time options as well. So part-time options, uh, the child, I believe it's up to, it, it used to be up to the age of 12, and then they reduced it down to six. So if a child is no more than six years, you can have them on a part-time basis. So that means they would come in and out perhaps on weekends. Okay, That is basically the crux of the program. The program grew out of a uh, task force that was created in the 1990s where women came together, fellow inmates and current inmates who were incarcerated. These are women. Uh, female offenders who came together and provided narratives and it generated this creating choices report and this report was the first of its time because it involved the voices of women who themselves were women and mostly mothers Mm -hmm. and they gave their experiences of being incarcerated and criminalized and what that meant in terms of parenting um, and the ability to parent the program sort of grew out of that creating choices report and it has its own set of philosophies and ideals The thing is, is what it is on paper versus how it works in action. It's that difference between legal formalism and legal realism, or this idea of, you know, in theory versus in practice are two different things. Going back to the full-time program, how did the logistics work of having a child live in the facility? Like, do they have their own area with their mother? Typically what you'll see in a prison system is you'll have, again, these classifications and they're cascading. So we have minimum, medium, and maximum. Typically, the mother-child unit, it's actually like a little cottage. They're, they're housing units that are on the uh, grounds of the, the prison. And so it looks like a little village, essentially, and it has a green space. Uh, it has playgrounds outside. And so, yes, within this mother-child unit, which is essentially a cottage-style home, mm-hmm. um, you will have a mother and child. Now, that woman is going to be living with other women, though. And then there's a house manager, so this is an individual that is essentially governing that that home, right? Um, and they are in charge of both the women and the children in terms of oversight, making sure that nothing bad is happening, right? So within these cottages, so to speak, would there be just one mother that has a child? Or would there be many children living with their mothers together? So I think it's important to explain this now that the mother-child program is heavily underutilized. There's not, first off, there's not many women that are incarcerated and pregnant at the same time. So keep that in mind. The second issue is that many of these women may not choose to have their children with them. And the third issue is that, or the, the third reality is that many of these women would have children that far exceed that age limit, right? They have older children, so they're not eligible anyways. So typically, you would only have one mother and a child. According to the statistics from CSC, they it's, it's hard to say again because they don't necessarily provide um, a, a uniform standardized tracking system, but they, they estimate between 6 and 13 women have used this program full-time. Now, that's across Canada. So if you think about it, there is approximately 
almost 700 female offenders as of 2019 in the federal system. Only 6 to 13 have been in a full-time residential program with their child. So it's a very, very, very small percentage. So to answer your question, yes, it's very unlikely that you'll actually see women with children, um, but it does happen and it's allowed to happen. It's permitted based on candidacy and the application process. Couldn't that be a potentially dangerous situation or would be detrimental to the child being in that environment? Like, I assume the mother is approved, but they live with other inmates who maybe aren't approved. So wouldn't that be a concern? Right. So that's a really great question. Well, the mother would have to go through an application process and to determine candidacy, whether or not she's eligible. First off, most women are not going to be eligible for this program based on a variety of reasons and factors, mental health, their classification, okay, whether or not they're considered a dangerous offender. Now, women are eligible if they are minimum or medium security and or if they're in maximum security, but they're being moved down to medium security, they would be eligible. However, they would have to go through mental health screening and they'd have to have their application be processed by the review board, which is headed by the uh, institutional head. And they would determine whether or not this, this person is a risk to this child and whether or not placing that child in that mother-child unit and the general population, if there's a disproportionate amount of risk there, because the preeminent consideration is the safety of the child. So if you ask about dangerousness, it depends on who you're talking to. So what's interesting about this program is that it involves many stakeholders. So it involves a mother-child program coordinator who oversees the applicant and the review of that applicant every 30 days. It involves the parole officer. It involves the warden or the assistant warden. It also involves CPS, so Child Protective Services. And they're all part of what they call a case management team. And they're they're all there essentially working together to ensure that that child's best interests are kept at heart. Now, if you ask people who, for example, my friend who is a or was a correctional officer, they would argue from a union standpoint that who wants to take on the responsibility of having to look after children in this kind of environment? The thing is, is that, and, and we don't really know how often they happen, but it is rumored that in these facilities, there are lockdowns, for example, and they happen periodically. So that's when the entire system shuts down because something's gone missing or whatever it may be. There's some kind of incompatible situation. What do you do when you have a child in that particular environment? So from a liability perspective, correctional officers are not entirely supportive of this idea. You have politicians who would say that prisons are not a place for children because they're highly volatile and they're oppressive. They're not pretty places. Um, They're not necessarily the most conducive to proper socialization. Then you have CPS. They would argue, well, they argue different things. They argue that for one, when we're assessing the mother, we want to know, can she parent? That's simply what they're asking. Can she parent? If she can parent, then to them, there's no difference between volatility in the community than volatility in a prison system. However, they recognize that there is a key socialization piece there where up to the age of four, you can sort of mitigate the risks associated with improper socialization, right? The child is not necessarily aware or fully aware that they're in a prison, right? Their main concern is being with mom. When you pass that age limit, even though you wouldn't be there on a full-time residency basis, on a part-time basis, that child would be in direct contact with other inmates. They would probably recognize at that point that they are in a very different situation than their peers. They are going into an institution for visitations. They're having to take appointments out in the community. You would recognize that I'm in a different world inside versus outside. Mm -hmm. So CPS, again, they're fine with the program so long as it doesn't impact a child's socialization. And so they've come up with this, this age, this age maximum, this age restriction. Some would argue though, that it's sort of an arbitrary designation, right? What's the difference between four, six, and 12? What's the difference between two and four? Where are the cutoff points? Again, it depends on who you ask. Is it dangerous? So yes and no. There's the potential for danger, absolutely. 
And you can't deny the fact that there are outbreaks, there's incompatible situations, there's conflict between the women in the house. There is, there are safety concerns there, yes. However, again, they're looking at it from the perspective of, we need to keep this mother and child together. What do we need to do to safely facilitate that? And is there much, is there a disproportionate risk or difference in risk between what's happening in here versus what would be happening in their, their home, in the community? So it seems like this magic age of four was determined because before then children don't really understand what's going on in their environment. So they wouldn't likely be negatively affected. I'm sure that some would argue in that particular area of expertise that from a very early age, children start to become aware of the differences in their environment. However, to make this program work, you would have to just find some kind of objective or make an objective determination that it's this age, it's this cutoff. It seems like a lot of things have to align for this program to work. So the mothers are very vetted before they would be able to have their children with them. It's quite vetted, yes. And it's, it's, a, it's a puzzle and, and often described as a puzzle with many pieces and they all have to fall into proper place. It's kind of funny because from an institutional perspective, do they want to absorb that liability if something should happen to that child? Like we've seen the Ashley Smith uh, inquiry, what happened in that particular case, and we look at how CSC tried to manage their reputation and and um, external influence from the media and such and the scrutiny. Could you explain the Ashley Smith case for us? Yeah, so Ashley Smith was incarcerated at um, GVI. She asphyxiated herself in 2007 in her own cell. Allegedly, and I, I, I guess the, the footage supports that guards did not intervene or they didn't intervene when they were supposed to and they didn't do the right thing. Subsequently, she ended her life. Um, she stopped reading in her cell. There was an inquiry in 2012, I believe, um, into her death. And really, essentially, at that point, there were factions that were developing in CSC. It was administrative groups, the administration, the prison administration, who were, I would say, in essence, trying to blame correctional officers. Correctional officers are trying to blame the, the administrators. Somebody wanted to lay blame. There was a media ban in the case, so there was a request for a media ban, I should say, because CSC wanted to, I would argue, protect its reputation. I mean, this would... This is a huge stain on them, allowing something like this to happen. Interesting enough, so 2012 is sort of on the cusp of when I began my own research. When I inquired about getting into the the prison system, of course, you have to file an ethics review. And the chances of getting in were slim, and I was lucky that I got in. But I also had to make certain concessions in order to get in, agree not to, for example, interview inmates currently being incarcerated. My point is, is that there was a, a, a tension, there was a reluctance to let outsiders into the institution because, again, of the, the liability issues and, and uh, what had happened in that particular inquest with Ashley. So, again, I'm not an expert on the Ashley Smith case. I might have my dates misconstrued, but you get the gist of it that there this that was one stain on the system, right? And there's been a historical legacy of different stains on the system. And so mother-child just presents another complicated layer of all that, that when you bring in a child um, who hasn't asked to be incarcerated, but essentially what you're doing, because they're subject to all the same protocols. They, they have, they're searched. They can have their belongings searched. I mean, they don't know that because they're four, but, you know, it does raise questions around discretionary practices and you know if I'm a mom and I'm watching my child be searched if I see something that I don't like or I feel is a violation you know how do you navigate all of this right it's very complex and it could be very messy if there's some kind of grievance that's filed as a result of these practices and protocols. So we talked about the issues or potential issues with this program so I want to talk about the positives now. Do you know if this program affects recidivism rates? We don't really know because we haven't had many people in the program, in the residential component. And I think that's what interests people the most. And what they find fascinating is the residential component, whether full-time or part-time. Mother-child program, I should say this now, is, is involves a host of different services. So it can include anything having to do with 
some kind of uh, counseling, like parental counseling, uh, parental support programs aimed to enhance uh, breastfeeding, for example, like pumping especially and wanting to get that breast milk out to your child, pumping and storage, doulas, so midwifery. So it involves a whole host of other types of activities and services that are outside of that residency component. So what people are interested naturally are babies that are in prison. That's the most salacious part of this. Does it work? We don't know. We don't have any longitudinal research to determine whether or not a woman's recidivism is uh, impacted by her ability to keep her child. In the U.S., prison nurseries are more popular, but that's also because they have a much higher incarceration rate. They have many more people in prisons, right, in the U.S. Mm -hmm. So they have to solve the problem of motherhood somehow. And they suggest that it reduces recidivism by 50% in the first five years. What happens after that five years, we don't know. Okay, again, there's a lack of longitudinal research at this point. In Canada, we just don't have the numbers. Unless we sit down and do some qualitative research and and have an in-depth interview with, let's say, five of those women, you have no way of knowing if if this is leading towards some general trend. But what's the idea of what is trying to be accomplished with this program? Like, why would you want to have children with their mothers in prison in the first place? Or what's the idea behind that? Well, it's all, it's all premised or predicated upon this notion that, that there are consequences when you separate children from their mothers. It leads to maternal anxiety. I mean, myself as a mom, if, if someone were to take my child away and I'd be incarcerated, I'd be worried all the time. I'd be worried sick, um, not knowing what's happening. Part of it is this idea that by solidifying that maternal bond that the mother is going to, well, at least maternal anxiety is going to be reduced, which impacts their decision-making and allows them to, in some, it sounds strange to participate in, in, in their programming in prison, to get on with different aspects of their incarceration in order to move forward and eventually be reintegrated. Could it also be a case that the only other option would be that the child goes into foster care? From a CPS perspective, Their goal right now is to ensure that there's some kind of kinship tie. So they are moving away from the traditional orientation of apprehension. They want to keep mothers and families intact. So they're experiencing a paradigmatic shift as well in what they do. Yes, the alternative is that the child would be placed in what they call a parallel plan. And that means that if the mother is not a suitable applicant, then the child would have to be placed. Typically, they're going to be placed with, well, either the biological father, uh, some kind of uh, maternal grandparent, paternal grandparents. In very rare cases, they'll be placed in a foster care situation. The goal is to always keep a kinship tie. It's not optimal. For them, they would say, you know, being with mom is optimal. But if that can't happen, then they're going to engage in parallel planning, which is typically what happens. Hmm. So a question that comes to mind is, is there something like a father-child program If the father is incarcerated, then they can have their child with them? No, that's a great question too, because there's been uh, criticism. There's been discussion about that. You know, why can't men have the same type of service or program offered to them? I mean, that raises all kinds of of issues. Like, It's really how we think about and prioritize that maternal child relationship, right? And the, the sanctity of that relationship versus... Not to say it's not important and crucial and vital, absolutely. And some fathers are better than some mothers, mm-hmm. absolutely. You don't want children in a male facility. First off, there's far more males incarcerated. So you're talking about 700 federal female offenders in a general population of 15,000 total. Wow. So the rest are males. You don't want children in that kind of institution. I don't think you do. However, That's not to say it doesn't happen in other areas or um, spots in the world. So no, men's rights, prisoner rights advocates have said, why why is this just for women and not for men? Again, it comes down to how, you know, our cultural values, our, our understandings, our assumptions about that maternal bond. I've heard that mothers are usually more favored in terms of custody agreements in like family court. Yeah, yeah. I think that the tide is sort of changing there. I think there's a growing recognition that just because you're, and this came out in my research as well, that not all women have the same desires. We don't all desire to mother. We don't all make good mothers. 
and what does that mean? But there is a growing recognition that fathers also have contributed right to making this child and they do have a certain set of rights and and they may be excellent caregivers better than the maternal figure um, but there is a general tendency to lean on or to favor the the maternal side okay so touching on something you just said can a mother parent well in prison like what sort of decision making can a mother actually make for her child while she's incarcerated well, they're completely in charge of, so for example, if a child has to go for a vaccination or a medical appointment, of the so, anything of the sorts, they would be in charge of making those appointments. They do all of the same logistical, practical stuff normal moms do or have to do. I guess it depends on how you measure success. So again, that depends on who the stakeholder is. Is the child fed? Is the child clothed? Does it have access to education uh, and medical services? Those are baseline expectations, right? Can those be satisfied within the institution? Yes. Then you move up to the next level, right? Can you provide emotional support? Are you there to, to nurture that child? Can you nurture? And so, again, I'm not a child expert, but, you know, as a mom, it's, you know, when your child's hurt, do you comfort them? You know, do you discipline them? That, that's a gray area as well. So what can you parent well? I think you have to parent carefully, because some things may be misinterpreted and there's different sets of standards. Do you spank your child in front of a, of a house manager? Probably not. Although that technically is your right, I suppose, as a parent to discipline how you see fit. But in those types of setting, you are being uh, monitored and that's all part of your parental agreement and, and uh, can be, could be the basis of a termination from the program. So parenting well, like I said, it, it's parenting very carefully and making sure that I suppose you are, of course, meeting those baseline expectations, but demonstrate pro-social parenting behavior. You know, I think we all sort of have a common sense understanding of what that means, but there are some times where as parents, we make very subjective decisions based on the character of our child. And so I think that's one of the most complicated areas of the program is what happens when you have to discipline your child and somebody who's observing you doesn't like the way you discipline? It's too hard or too light. It doesn't match their set of expectations of what should be happening. It could be, it could be grounds for termination. You mentioned that you get reevaluated every 30 days when you're in this program. So I can imagine it's stressful to always feel like you're being watched as you parent with potentially big consequences if someone decides that you're not doing it well. Right, yeah, so there is that review process. If you if there are grounds for termination and you are terminated, you can reapply, there is a rebuttal process. Again, I don't know how often that would be used and on what grounds. I think it's pretty hard when you're incarcerated to try to work with a bureaucracy to, to justify, to rationalize and to, to defend yourself. But um, yeah, it is, a, it is quite a gray area. However, that being said, the facts are you've, you've committed a crime and you are there for a reason. And so you have to accept that a certain amount of your rights are taken away. So there's always this balancing act where we have to, of course, uphold the rights of the prisoner, so to speak, the inmate, but also uphold the rights of the child and at the same time uphold the, the goals of the system and uphold the justice system. There's no right or wrong answer. I have two parents who both discipline and parent differently. So I can imagine with a whole case review team and then a whole house of women, there would be a lot of opinions. It could get convoluted. That's an interesting point as well, is that you're in a household with other women. And I think we sort of touched upon this. If you're bringing the child into that house, each of those women would have to be vetted. And they don't necessarily like that because you may be opening up old wounds and you're being scrutinized on the basis that someone else's child is coming into this unit. They might not be, there might be tensions there and conflict over this, right? I mean, the way it was presented to me was that in sort of this very stereotypical way that all the women sort of come in and help out and they're just all so eager and happy mm -hmm. that a child, and perhaps that's true in some cases, mm -hmm. but not always, mm -hmm. not always. Yeah. Maybe women don't want a crying baby. And, and especially if they have their own issues, it's not necessarily the best thing for everybody in the house. I can imagine that there are different age ranges of people within the house. Like you could have people that are parents themselves or grandparents even, 
and then maybe someone who's just turned 19. For sure. So you you have a diversity of, of people there yeah. and all different interests and needs. And, you know, anytime you bring a child into that, you can't presume that that's going to always be a positive thing. Okay, so I want to know how is this program funded? And who's making the decisions that this program is even allowed to exist and under what circumstances? The program does exist. It's a federally operated program. It's there on paper. It is up to the warden whether or not they want to institute the program, implement it. And then again, it's up to their discretion who would be a suitable applicant to the program. Part of the, this is this is the difficult part with mother-child. There hasn't been a lot of research on the funding component of it. And it's not always easy to obtain funding information from those particular government organizations. So what I can surmise is that mother-child programming would be just like any other program incorporated into the budget, okay? And the budget would be um, handed down by the federal government. They're going to give you this amount of money. And within that particular budget, you would have to carve out your program. And so you would be constrained according to the budget, but also is there capacity within the institution, like infrastructure-wise? Do we have space, really? And in the women's uh, sector, there is space. There typically is infrastructure, but not necessarily separate funding. So who's going to pay for a, a child's items, toys, for example, or a high chair? So it technically falls to the, the mother, she can have a certain amount of money, I believe it's $750 worth of goods that belong to the, the children uh, that are set aside for the children. And that would include whatever that may be, um, mostly necessities, I would assume. And then that has to be audited, of course, by CSC. So it's really a part of their, it's a part of their entire budget. It's just what's allocated based on what they foresee as important within the institution. There is, sometimes they can draw different sources of funding from different agencies, but they would rely a lot on in-reach, or sorry, outreach, I should say, or in-reach, individuals or groups from the community that would come into the prison and provide certain things. Mm -hmm. So someone might come in from a particular philanthropic organization and, and bring in bottles. So it's kind of like a, it's, it's kind of scrapping together what you can Again, not many women have used the program. And when you go into these spaces, it's pretty bare. It's not like what you would see on television and, and what you'd envision, right, with jolly jumpers and, you know, state-of-the-art cribs and strollers. This is pretty bare. But when you have women in the community, and so this is where my research sort of branched off, was what do we do with women who are going to be reintegrated and retransitioned back into the community with their child? So they would go to a community residential facility and technically the child is not paid for. There's no money in the system allocated towards the child being in a, in a halfway house. The money is allocated towards the woman based on a per diem every day. The community residential facility, they are going to be provided a per diem for every woman they bring into that house. It goes according to bed. Okay, and they need that revenue. So that's how they, they make money and that's how they function and they provide the services they do. But that money will not be, those per diems do not, are not set aside for children. So when that mother brings in a child, let's say, we would have to rely completely on that patchwork funding, bringing in donations from other community sponsors, people just dropping off money, dropping off supplies. Okay, so it could be financial donations or material donations. And then these houses... These halfway houses, they, they're sister houses, so they'll often work with each other and they'll say, well, what do you need? And we'll bring it over. There's not money per se set aside in the budget, at least not based on the research I've done. Mm -hmm. So that again really starts to, uh, I, I start to ask the question then, okay, it's on paper, but again, if there's not the funding for it, then how can we accommodate children? How can we run this program? Now, if you're fortunate, you'll be able to apply for a satellite apartment, and that's one option, but those are few and far between, and that would allow you to have your children with you and, and as you serve out the remaining part of your sentence in the community. There are a few CRFs that do have um, fully integrated mother-child programs, but again, they're, they're few and far between. It's not common. And is it common for women to want to have their child with them at a halfway house? 
my understanding based on talking to the staff is that yes, women want to be with their children. Mm -hmm. Not all women want to be with their children on the basis that, and this is where things get again um, fuzzy, um, they have to technically work on themselves. So this becomes the sort of Achilles heel of all of this. They want to work on themselves. Maybe they don't want their children exposed to, there's drugs in halfway houses, Mm -hmm. okay? There's fighting. Mm -hmm. Maybe you don't want your children exposed to that. And so you'd rather have them off safe with their father or, you know, some other guardian. Then there is the fact that a part of their programming requires them to do a lot of things during the day. Finding employment, obtaining some kind of education, right? Working on their resumes, counseling. How do you do all that? Look after children. Who looks after them during the day? Where's your daycare? How do you do that with a curfew? And then remember, too, that many of these women are not from those communities, So they're from communities that are far away from this halfway house or the prison. And so you're not going to have your network with you, right? If you have parents or aunts or uncles that could chip in, they can't do it. I don't know, thinking about it, if I were in that position, I don't know that I'd want my child in that situation either. So there's a lot of safety concerns there. You know, I I would think that a lot of the women try very hard to get along, but these are also individuals who, again, are very diverse they have a lot of issues that they have to tackle and then they have to be confined with other women and then you throw a baby into the mix or any young child. It's uh, it's difficult. And then where does the burden lie? So when I was speaking to the few of the executive directors of these homes, I was asking them about this, like, who looks after these children, you know, when they're running around? Kids are crazy, right? They get into everything and they're like, sometimes it's us. Sometimes it's us running after them, trying to work on grants and applications or intakes, and we've got a child that's bouncing around. It is a very, very uh, difficult system to navigate. At risk of generalizing, I can imagine that if you were in a situation where you were incarcerated for whatever reason, your life would be pretty tumultuous. And a lot of the restrictions that, again, they, they these women face and deal with as part of their sentence, because they're still completing their sentence in the community, it, it's not conducive to looking after children. As a mom myself, I think about all the constraints, you know, going through a PhD program, having a baby, being married, running a household, working. And some days you just are completely deflated. You're, you are completely cooked. So imagine throwing in being incarcerated or criminalized or, or having these limitations. You know, it must seem overwhelming. Then not only that, you're you're also, I mean, I can sit here and say, well, okay, you know, I, I was completely exhausted by the end of the day, but I also have four decent walls around me. I have a roof over my head. I've got, you know, some money. I live in a safe home. A lot of these women don't even have access to safe housing. So one of the women that I interviewed she was talking to me about the fact that she, once she secured housing, it ended up being close to where her old drug den was, which was obviously problematic because it, it can, you know, trigger those feelings again. And then there was fire damage. There was a fire and there was damage. And so she couldn't convince her social worker that this was a safe place to have her children. And if you can't convince them of that, you're not getting your kids back. So it's like this endless circle of problems um, that you, I would find very difficult to try to climb out of when you're dealing with those, those uh, types of issues. We're used to the luxuries, but when you don't know your house is not safe, there's, there's people around you that are fighting, the, you have no running water, chances are you're not you know, flushed with money to be able to afford $2,000 worth of rent. Yeah, I can imagine it's extremely extremely difficult and that's probably an understatement i'm curious you weren't allowed to talk to incarcerated women for your research so who were you able to talk to for this research well i I shouldn't say i wasn't allowed to and i can't remember exactly what happened but i i i just know that i decided not to because it would complicate my clearance i'll give you one example i went into a mother child unit at the prison and there happened to be a, a woman, a housemate there. She knew I was there and I was talking with the case manager. Technically, I wasn't allowed to speak to her, but she certainly spoke to me. I mean, she, as soon as she found out that I was working on research on the mother-child program, she overheard this. She was um, telling me all about her problems with 
breast milk storage. Like it was like, oh my God, I've got this opportunity. Yeah. I, I need to say something right now because they don't have those opportunities to, com- to, to complain. I, I did not make that a possibility because I knew that it was going to prolong my ethics or complicate it. And I didn't want my application denied. So um, I was able to speak to women who were formerly incarcerated, mm. who were who were not on parole. They were they were back full into release. They were no longer on any sort of conditional release at all. None of those women had participated in the resident component. Some of the women had participated in those ancillary services, right? Like mom and tots programs. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have these programs where you read a storybook and you record it for your children, mm-hmm. things like that. Do you think that their overall sentiment of the program is good, both of the residential component or of the other services in the mother-child program? Well, I mean, I again, I didn't speak to women who had participated in the residential component, nor did I speak to women who were in that particular, who were incarcerated at the time. Is there support for it? I think there is support. The idea is good. But again, when you talk to these women, they will make it very clear at how many restrictions there are and how limited these these application processes can be based on the fact that, I mean, these, these they haven't had the most glowing existence. I mean, it's been rife with complications, mental health needs, addiction. They're not necessarily coming in there with clean records and never had an issue in their life, right? They're very complicated in that sense. And so these programs would seem very restrictive, almost, what's the word I'm looking for? You know, why try? Because you, you might get turned down. Chances are you'll get turn, turned down. Going back to the fact that there's been so few women in the program, the residency component. And I mean, I, I can imagine that, okay, yes, there's not a lot of pregnant women going into the program, but there's certainly got to be quite a few who have young children, at least up to the age of four. You'd think that there'd be more people in the program to, to date, but there hasn't. Not that I know of anyways. They tried doing the child link visitation. So where a child could communicate through the internet with the parent. Was it internet or telephone at that point? I can't remember, but, and this would be set up at a library. They only had one participant in that pilot project. So it sounds like a great idea, but then they ran into problems because, well, who's going to drop this child off? What what kind of security checks are we going to need for the individual who's the guardian bringing this child in? How are we going to monitor all of this? So it, it, there's like, you know, yeah, the ideas are there. There's things out of the, the control of the government that I understand. There are limitations. But then it comes back down to, okay, so then why are we doing this program then? Why, why have it at all? If you're willing to put a child into a prison, why don't you just pull the woman out and have her under community su- supervision with the child if she's not a risk? Why put children in when you could pull her out? Perhaps even save yourself a little bit of money mm-hmm. and space have that child living with the mother in a community setting. These are first-time offenders, most of them, most of these women. They're not serious, dangerous offenders, not to excuse what they've done, but a lot of these women engage in criminal activity because, well, because of addiction and mental health, but maybe they don't necessarily have a lot of access to different resources, survival crimes type of thing. You know, if they're not a risk to their child, it just seems very, very counterproductive to say that it's justified and rational to put a, a, a child, you know, an innocent child into a prison, oppressive prison system, instead of thinking of solutions to bring the woman out so she can be with her children. If it's about recidivism, if it's really about cutting down on generational cycles of crime and, and maintaining that maternal bond. So my next question, and you might have already answered it, is what changes would you make to this program to improve it or to make it more utilized? I think there's something really fundamentally wrong with the system if you're trying to put kids in a prison. So, I mean, it, it's practiced throughout the world, and that's because of it's out of necessity. Those children will be orphaned if they are not in prison with their families, for example, or with their mothers. Do you want to adopt that kind of system anyways? Is that What kind of best practice is that where you have generations of families incarcerated? And these are, these are oppressive, in, in other countries, very impoverished settings. It seems very strange to me that you'd even want to start building up a program like this when your goal should be probably putting money allocation and resources into addressing what's going on with the woman herself. I think the better question is how could we improve her chances of getting out, increasing parole eligibility, uh, bringing back accelerated parole, finding ways to 
get her out and better equipped than bringing children in. And think about the stigma for children as well. You know, what did you do on the weekend? Oh, I went to see mommy in jail. It seems very upside down to me and counterproductive. But I know that from a government standpoint, we're seeing mass incarceration throughout UK, the US, Canada's getting up there. The lowest incarceration rates are in Europe, European countries, and some of the the Nordic countries because they have a completely different take on incarceration. But why we're, we're seeing this mass incarceration, this trend, and, and really what it boils down to is we're going to see a greater gap between rich and poor. Well, what do you do with the poor people? And we know that poverty is, is correlated with crime. Well, we're just going to incarcerate them. It's housing people. So that's probably what you'll see in Canada as well, as we see inflation rise, as we see people losing their jobs, as we see greater divide between rich and poor. How do the rich manage that undesirable population? Well, just incarcerate them, throw these, throw them into these institutions over the generations. And it's, you know, sort of taken care of, masked, put behind closed doors. Yeah. I wouldn't even try to improve mother-child programming. Just dismantle it because it's, it's clearly, I, don't, I wouldn't say it's necessarily the greatest solution to all this. I don't see it as a progressive solution, although it's endorsed by the United Nations as the best practice. Well, that's because we're trying to manage people who live on the periphery and and that group of people is growing and growing and growing we're, we're losing our middle class we're becoming more impoverished we're we're all getting hit financially you know economically mm-hmm. and so that group is going to grow and how do you manage that to me it seems i don't know repressive i don't know digressive that's a word it's devolving it seems like we're focusing on the wrong thing. I'm not sure it really came out in my research, but I think the big connection there is that mother-child programming is just one of very, very many examples, illustrations of the government, of neoliberalism, of these deregulated markets, this focus on extreme capitalism, that the wealthy, the elite, trying to find ways to simply manage a problem. And motherhood is a big problem when it comes to incarceration. That's my sort of um, connection to the big picture. Was one of the goals of your research to shed light on this topic? Yeah. I mean, it's to show that, for one, it's, it's, uh, I think it's a really dangerous path to take. You don't accomplish much by incarcerating generations of people. What would that accomplish except to keep them down? You know, as we're seeing more and more people entering into the plight of poverty... It worries me that this is just like sort of an end-all solution to a very large societal problem. You know, sort of this uh, mass poverty that's happening. And part of the aim of the research was to actually just figure out what it was because not a lot had been written on it and there's still not a lot. Also provide a Canadian perspective. So we have a lot of information from the States. But why do you want to adopt practices from the U.S. when they have an incarceration of something like seven for, 700 individuals for every 100,000 people are incarcerated. That is a exponential amount of people being incarcerated. Canada hovers in around 130, 140 per 100,000 people. Why do you want to follow that type of route? It seems like, at least for me, we hear a lot about the issues with the prison system in the U.S., such as the privatization, which creates a demand and an economy for a lot of people to be incarcerated, or very harsh sentences, um, the overrepresentation of racialized and marginalized demographics. But it seems like what you're saying is we might be going towards that in Canada. Yeah, well, we're headed towards the same end, right? Because we are starting to privatize services. Um, Grand Valley Institute, they just expanded. Uh, I think they added 40 more beds. And I mean, we have more population now. I mean, there's a lot of factors, right? And I mean, this is not to say that the correctional system is entirely to blame. We, we've seen a lot of, we've seen the erosion of, of different institutions and, and really the breakdown of families. We've seen the breakdown of communities, of neighborhoods. Um, we've seen a disproportionate upward mobility of wealth, especially in the last two years with this pandemic that has left a lot of people impoverished and very strenuous predicaments, you know, financially. You know, the U.S. is sort of like where we'll be. They just have more population, right? We're going to start to see, I think, greater evidence of moving towards, you know, privatization of healthcare, And so this is all going to sort of impact incarceration and, and how we deal with, with crime. It's a, I think that with mother-child programming, it's a very slippery slope. 
I'm not saying that it's it, that there, it isn't necessarily well intended, and there's people that believe in it, and I'm I'm sure that in certain aspects it works. But when I look at the big picture, it it doesn't impress me that this is the only thing we can come up with. Do you think it could be part of policymakers wanting to appear progressive? Well, for sure. I mean, it's I mean, as I said, it's part of UN policy that this has become a best practice. I mean, I find that questionable. I mean, and I understand that on first read, when you look at that, if you took a surface read of that policy of those documents of those protocols, I should say, it sounds good, right? Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Keeping moms with their babies. You know, it really, when I hear that, it's like, oh, you know, it feels good, right? As a mom to be able to keep your baby. But, you know, what are the broader implications of all this? And so there's definitely, it feels good. But I don't think that it's going to produce the types of outcomes that we want if it begins to become more utilized. I feel like we just don't know much about this in the general public consciousness. It's pretty much kept behind closed doors and for, for valid reason. They have to do their job. Correctional Service Canada, uh, the ministries, they have to do their job. They have to find ways to manage crime. And part of that is incarcerating. I mean, it's a reality. Um, and there are some really fantastic people in that system. But I think because it's become you know bureaucracies take on a life of their own and i think that's what you see here so they take on a life of their own they have their own set of rules their own language practices and protocols they have immense power too there's a reason why it's kept quiet because by exposing it you would be exposing really ailments that are facing your society yeah it was a highly political issue it's politically contentious, mother-child programming. The conservatives, they've scrutinized it, placed more restrictions on the program, whereas the, the left has been more accepting. But again, right or left, I, I still don't think that it's the way to go. It sounds good, but it's a very dangerous step, I think, in the wrong direction. Thanks for listening to today's episode. I hope you learned something new and then it gave you some ideas to think about and reflect on. A huge thank you again to Dr. Carly LaRue-Demir for sitting down to speak with me. And if you want some follow-up materials, I recommend the Ear Hustle podcast that I mentioned at the top of the show or the Life Jolt podcast from the CBC, which interviews women living at GBI. For feedback or more of our episodes, go to uwaterlooewb.wixsite.com or find us on any music streaming service. Thanks again for listening. Bye!